0: I'm Robin Amler of IBS Intelligence. You're listening to the IBS I Views podcast. With me is Chris Blackhurst, author of Too Big to Jail, a story about HSBC and Mexican drug cartels and an eye-watering $1.9 billion fine. Or is it eye-watering? We'll come on to that in a moment, and Chris will take us through the story. But things have changed since this happened. It's over 10 years ago. We have new technologies, we have artificial intelligence, we have machine learning. Things that may have taken time in the past in terms of compliance investigations, in terms of spotting suspicious activity, should be quicker, should be easier, should be more effective now. But the question is, do we really think it is, or is this kind of thing just going to happen again? (laughs)
1: Uh, It's a very good question. I think
0: in terms of the the new technology and the
1: the technology that's available now and the way technology is developing, a lot of the HSBC story was to do with volume and how do you manage thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of transactions flowing through your system and some of them are dodgy. Now, at that time, there were warnings in place, there were red flags and all sorts. With better technology, I think they could be flagged up earlier and brought to people's attention. That's definitely the case. There is a rider, though, and I'm afraid it's an old tech rider, which is that um, at the end of all this, you need human beings to actually process the results and take heed of the warnings. Now, as my book says, there were warnings, at lower levels, the, management's had, the managers had a fair idea of what was going on. The Mexican authorities were also across it and knew what was happening and could see what was happening. And yet there was a disconnect between Mexico and London, which is where HSBC was based and headquartered. And that's enabled the people at headquarters in London not to know what was going on or They were so busy, they turned a blind eye. Well, with new technology, lights ought to be flashing on their screens in London immediately. And that ought to be the case. But of course, I come back to what I just said. They do have
0: to actually look at the lights and take heed. Well, let's walk through the story then. What exactly happened? What went wrong? What what exactly happened is is a, a classic
1: tale of hubris, arrogance, ambition. You choose the words. Basically. HSBC was a global bank founded, as we know, in the 1870s in Hong Kong and then grew to become one of the world's biggest banks. In 2002, it was named the best-run bank in the world. Now, for most people, I guess yourself and for me and listeners to this, that would be quite an accolade. But for HSBC and their investors, and to be fair, the City and Wall Street, who were Always piling in on the bank. They always wanted more. And they wanted the bank to not only be the best run bank in the world, but to be the biggest bank in the world. To be the biggest bank in the world, that meant having to compete and take on head to head Citigroup and Bank of America. They were then the two biggest banks. HSBC, while it was a global bank, there were places in the world where it didn't have a presence. And one of those was Latin America. And Latin America was seen as a sort of coming place, a happening place, a region that was due primed to take off. And if you include Latin America or extend it down into South America, to Brazil, Argentina, these were seen as places that were ripe for developing. So HSBC decided that it wanted to be in Mexico. Its rivals had actually got ahead of it. After the Peso banking crisis, the Mexicans had taken a view that they were going to effectively privatize their banks and they'd nationalised them. Now they were going to privatize them and they were going to let foreigners in with the money, with the systems to take over their banks and expand the banking sector. By the time HSBC got around to deciding we're going to go in, others had got there before them. The bank that was left was a bank called Bital. And Bittal was a small family-run bank, primarily in northern Mexico, and that should have been the first warning, because northern Mexico, that's the drug country, close to the American border, it's where the cartels dominate and where they operate. And the Mexican authorities made it plain to HSBC that this bank did not really do compliance, not in the way that banks in in London and New York were doing compliance. HSBC took the view that they were HSBC; they knew best. They put in their own systems and controls, and uh, the Mexicans were happy with that. So the deal went ahead. To give you an example of how crazy it was, they actually named the deal Project High Noon, which is really bizarre. is a sort of example of testosterone-fueled <laughs> male aggression. Why they had to name the acquisition of the fifth biggest bank in Mexico. Project High Noon, after the film with Gary Cooper, Lord Alone Knows. Anyway, they buy the bank and they completely fail to put in their own systems. In fact, what happened was that the the people in London, they were so intent on growing the bank and making it the biggest bank in the world that having bought Mexico, as they saw it, they simply moved on to other places. So they bought banks in Argentina, in Brazil... They bought a huge company called Household in a consumer lending company. They went into credit cards in the States. These were all things that HSBC had never done before. They set up an investment banking arm to rival JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. So all this activity was going on. Technology should still have cut through, but it didn't. The management's eyes were entirely focused on other things. And El Chapo, who was the leader of the Sinaloa drug cartel, which was the biggest of the cartels, and the book is really about this, it's about the twin ambitions. It's about the ambition of a bank to be the biggest bank in the world, and the ambition of a mobster to be the biggest drug supplier in the world. And the two came together. Chapo's problem was that when you sell drugs in the United States, invariably, of course, you're paid in cash, and you're paid in frankly, rather grubby dollar bills. You can't go into a bank in the United States with a hold full of cash and just deposit it. I mean, there are cameras everywhere and they're very heavy on that sort of thing. And even, I mean, it's a famous scene in one of the gangster movies, I think it's Scarface, where they do go in and do just that. In real life, that can't happen. You cannot just go into a bank with a hold full of cash. Chapo's problem was that he didn't just have holdalls. He actually had billions of dollars. We're talking billions and billions of dollars in cash, and he had nowhere to put it. So his solution was to smuggle it back into Mexico, down the same lines that he was using to get the drugs in. And then, to his pleasant surprise, he found that there was this new bank. Bital had been renamed HSBC. It had a global network. It was very welcoming his henchmen could go into the branches and deposit the cash. Imagine you're in a queue in a bank and the guy in front is depositing $933,000 in cash. I don't know about you, but I'd be sort of sighing and harrumphing and tapping the floor and saying, come on, mate, can you do this another time? <laughs> but that's what happened. He, the, the guy went into a bank with $933,000 in cash And it was deposited in bundles of $50,000. That's the biggest. On a daily basis, they were actually taking far more than that, but in smaller amounts. But nevertheless, huge amounts of cash just going over the counter. And it actually got to the point where, to speed things up, Chapo had made special boxes that fitted the teller's windows. To be fair, uh, the HSBC employees clearly knew what was going on but they were as i say in the book they were petrified these are people who kill i mean they don't even think about killing they then they what they think about is the manner of the killing they would hold up a picture of the children or the husband or whatever it was of the person behind the the bank window and that was a warning saying effectively we know who you are we know where you live you take this money or else And in fact, in Mexico, there is a saying, which is the silver or the lead. Silver being you take the money, the lead. If you don't, you're going to get shot. But the point about this as well is that HSBC should have been alive to this. It's not as if the whole Mexican drugs trade was new and unknown. It was very much alive, hugely problematic for the country. And they just turned a complete blind eye to it. The Mexican authorities were telling them what was going on. They were ignoring them. And then it reached a a sort of zenith, really, where, or Nadir, take, take your pick. In Mexico, bank accounts are in pesos. And you can't do much with the peso on the international market. People want the dollar. And HSBC actually had a very good solution to that, which was they made available their Cayman Islands operation. Money was paid into the bank accounts in Mexico it was then transferred electronically to bank accounts in the Cayman Islands, where they were held in dollars. To give an indication, in a very short period, a matter of, I think it was a year, 60,000 new accounts were opened at HSBC in the Cayman Islands, holding $1.2 billion in cash. Again, in terms of banking technology, yes, that was known, but They'd actually dug a bit deeper. They would have seen that this one point two billion was coming from peasant farmers in northern Mexico. I mean there's an example I give in the book, I think of a a woman who was growing watermelons and avocados in her backyard and had a bank account at hSBC in which she deposited over three hundred thousand dollars. No warning, nobody said "Where's this money from?" and that money went to the Cayman Islands what's a woman like that doing with a bank account in the Cayman Islands? Then it was used. And we know this because the Americans investigated it backwards, as it were. So the Americans found that Chapo had bought aircraft to transport the drugs. And when they traced where the money had come from to buy the aircraft, some of it came back to this woman's bank account in the Cayman Islands. That's really the story. And Basically, it got completely out of hand. Uh, I I say in the book that it was a a banking equivalent of Heart of Darkness, for those who prefer it in the movie form Apocalypse Now, where basically you've got a country or a region or an operation a long way from headquarters that is completely out of control. And that's what happened. And the Americans did wake up to it. So did the Mexicans very firmly. And They warned and warned HSBC. And again, this is quite uh, relevant on the technology front. When HSBC received its warnings, their solution, which was an old-fashioned one, was to hire bodies. They immediately went out and hired an incredible figure. I think it was 200 temporary people to come in and examine their, their records. These people were not motivated. They weren't bank employees. They had no career path within the bank. Some of them hadn't even, many of them hadn't gone through the normal bank recruitment procedures. And frankly, they didn't care. Nobody was bothering. I mean, they they just sat there and looked at records and didn't do anything. And that was a classic example of somewhere, something where new technology could have come in and dealt with it probably a lot quicker. It would still rely on human beings, though. And anyway, the Americans, in the end, got so fed up with HSBC that they wanted to throw the book at them. They wanted to prosecute individuals in the bank, including people at the very top. And they were very conscious as well that no banker, no senior banker, had been prosecuted over 2008. So we're now talking 2012. The Department of Justice were very firm. They wanted to prosecute. The British government obviously got to hear what was going on. HSBC is a British bank. They intervened and said, in the shape of George Osborne, who was then the Chancellor, they intervened and said, if you prosecute HSBC bankers, you threaten to bring down the entire bank and you threaten to bring down the entire banking system. No proof was ever offered for that. There was no evidence for this assertion. But the Americans went along with it and in the end decided to impose a fine, which was the biggest fine in American history, $1.9 billion. But that only equated to five weeks' profit of HSBC. And HSBC entered into
0: some sort of rehab reform program. So nobody got prosecuted. The bank was fined, okay, just over a month's profits, which doesn't seem even though $1.9 billion is an eye-watering amount of money, does not seem a lot for what's happened. Is it going to happen again?
1: Of course. And in essence, this is what the book is about, which is that as a society, we judge businesses on their size. And we have it in our heads, in our mindsets, that the bigger the business, the better the business. And there's this constant pressure all the time for businesses to grow and to be bigger. We never really pause and stop to think what does that really entail. HSBC has 40 million customers, but it grew from 170,000 employees to 333,000 employees in the space of two or three years. Now, 333,000 employees, frankly, you don't need me to tell you, is an awful lot of employees, and how you keep a handle on what they're doing. And you're in 64 territories. So how you keep a handle on all that? But that's what we expect, and it's not just in banking. It's in pharmaceuticals. It's in oil. I mean, you take it in retail. Pick any sector. We have it, it's ingrained in our DNA. The big is best. It's the big car, the big yacht, the big house, the big salary, the big company, um, and of course the big bonus. So unless people are brought to their senses it will happen again. And the only way, in my view, and I'm not alone in this, that you can bring people to their senses and make management realise that they have to take compliance seriously. Compliance isn't a group of people down the corridor who aren't doing anything to add to the PL of the bank. They're not earning money for the bank. You know, it's not a dead end within the bank. Compliance needs to be at the forefront, and it still isn't. The only way you deal with that is by bringing actual prosecutions and the threat of jail. Finding a business, I mean, it's the equivalent of finding an American football or British football star a week's wages. And when that happens, I sort of laugh and think, well, that's nothing. They can easily pay that. If you threaten them with jail, that's different. That destroys their reputation. It affects their families, their lives, their worth. And you know, no one wants to go to jail. But we have to start taking this seriously. And the, the other point I'd make there is that we have so far, in terms of drugs, utterly failed in the war against drugs. Drugs are as prevalent, more prevalent today than they've ever been, and yet we are supposed to be fighting a war against drugs. It's a utter failure. Part of the reason for that is we don't follow the money. We don't chase the money. We don't look where the money is going in the states. They're very proud of the fact that if you're, you know, what's the phrase? Three strikes and you're out. If you're a dealer and you're caught three times, you go to jail for a very long time. But that hasn't stopped the drugs trade. And the only way to stop the drugs trade, in my view, or one way, part of it, is to go after the people who are helping launder the money.
0: It's a cautionary tale. Chris Blackhurst, author of Too Big to Jail. Thank you very much.